Hello and welcome to the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. My name is Nick Zoraris. It is Wednesday in the middle of the pre-Super Bowl week. The football content's on the horizon, folks. We're using this extra time to catch up on other things around the sports world. Today's UFC episode, very nuanced, long-form discussions about the state of the organization, the major ethical and moral issues the organization is dealing with, um, just kind of Dana White running this place like WWE if the, you know, the matches were real, basically, is one of the main things that comes across in my conversation with my friend Mike Adams, who's been a freelance journalist for a while. He's written for a few local papers on Long Island, went to college, uh, with Mike, uh, Stony Brook School of Journalism alumni, we had we had a really good talk. But before I get over to the show and give a little bit of an introduction, please help grow the show. Subscribe if you're on Apple Podcasts. Follow if you're on Spotify. Bump the show on social media, whether you use Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Bump the show, please. Every listener counts when you are trying to get a show going from the ground up. The more listeners we get, the easier it is for me to get guests, because I can tell people, you know, we got 300 listeners last week, and I'm doing this basically as an independent podcast, so maybe if you come on, we can double that, and you know, it's it's a fulfilling cycle. The bigger your show gets, the better guests you can get, and it makes for better content, so anything you can do to help grow the show is appreciated. Do, do appreciate it. Um... Had a blog go up yesterday about the late Kobe Bryant and why heroes still matter. Uh, really hard to write, I'll be honest with you. I had to stop more than once to kind of just cry it out a little bit and feel bad about it. Because, fuck, man, Kobe's gone and it's not fair. But I digress. I'll have a Rangers blog at some point this week. Probably tomorrow, going to try and get that up, but... The Kobe stuff was timely. It needed to be written because I'd been thinking about it a lot recently because I know I knew the date the anniversary of his passing was coming up. So I really I needed to write something about it. And it didn't make me feel better, but it was a good way to channel my energy and not just sit around crying watching Kobe highlights all day. So this episode with Mike is about the Ultimate Fighting Championship UFC. The premier promotion in mixed martial arts had a big pay-per-view this past weekend where Conor McGregor fought for the first time in about a year. He fought Cowboy Cerrone last January, and he lost to Dustin Poirier, and it was time for a UFC check-in, because hadn't had a UFC episode yet of the show. We're about 35 episodes in now. We're really starting to get into a nice groove. We're getting guests, getting a lot of different topics, helping make the audience a little bit smarter, and that was the goal of this conversation with Mike, was to talk about things that people who are casual viewers of the UFC, or people who just aren't up on the news cycle about the UFC, don't know about, and stuff to think about before the next pay-per-view, or the next fight night, or the next episode of The Ultimate Fighter. Just things to think about. I will see you guys on the other side of the drop with Mike. Boy, I could I could really ruin this whole thing if I just come out here and start going like, and uh, <laughs> just completely incoherent. I'm all right though. I uh, 
got a little bit of a cold coming on, but I think it's a normal cold. We uh, we love our negative rapid COVID tests, don't we, folks? Yeah. yeah. Stay positive, test negative. The only That's good right, thing, baby. the only good thing Jim Harbaugh said in the six years he's been the head coach at Michigan. Exciting weekend in the UFC world. Uh, Conor McGregor decided to uh, bless us with his presence for the first time in a year and a half and got his ass knocked out in a round and a half. And we're going to talk a little bit about the actual state of the promotion, the people on the card, the fighting business part of it towards the end of the show. But big scale, Mike's here to talk about the issues that UFC as a promotion has and just kind of some of the ethical problems that come into having a organization run by a single person who has no accountability in any of his decisions, which leads me to the first topic on our beautiful rundown here is just Dana White being basically Vince McMahon, but like these are people's actual livelihoods. Like if something goes wrong in the octagon, someone dies. So just starting big picture, tell me a little bit about Dana White as an individual, as a person. Well, well, that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting topic because nobody has a higher opinion of Dana White and a more epic retelling of his life and times than the man himself. Uh, if you believe Dana White, uh, you know, he came from Boston, uh, happened to have a couple of buddies of his that, uh, that came into some money a little later on that we'll get into. But uh, apparently he made his living as a, I believe it was a boxer size instructor. This is what he says. And he says that he had to flee Boston uh, after being shook down by Whitey Bulger. Now, this is, um, this is a very interesting line of, <laughs> this is just a very interesting thing for him to say. And sometimes I think his own mythology doesn't, doesn't quite line up. I know uh, recently after the Spencer Fisher interview came out where he was talking about like, you know, basically every MMA fighter can point to the fight where they were like, oh, that, this is the one that permanently messed up my brain. You know, Dana White also came out and said that, you know, he's a fighter and he went through all this stuff. But I, I don't know if that vibes with boxer size quite so much. But anyways, he met up with his um, – he met he winds up meeting up with his buddies, uh, Lorenzo and Frank Fertitta, uh, from the noted Fertitta family, which was a branch of the Maceo crime family down in Galveston, Texas, uh, all mobbed up. Uh, these are also, I believe, uh, cousins of the Fertittas that own the Houston Rockets. Uh, again, this is all allegedly, I will say, uh, for the purposes of uh, our humble little uh, podcasting venture here. But uh, but yeah, all uh, mafia up, all uh, casino moneyed up from the uh, from the Station Palace Casino Empire, and they went and bought the UFC from, I believe it was still owned by Art Gracie at this point, or Orion, or one of them. It was the oh Art Davis, Art Davis and the uh, and the Gracie family, or like one of the fifty million branches of it that actually founded it. But um, you know, true to true to his form, um, Dana White. I will give him a compliment here. Dana White has presided over an exponential boom in the UFC's financial fortune and its global footprint. When they bought the promotion back in, I believe it was in 2000, or it was in the late 90s or the very early 2000s, um, the sport was near being legislated out of existence because uh, it was likened to human cockfighting by uh, then Senator John McCain, who uh, you know didn't have any sort of. Uh, Anheuser-Busch boxing sponsorships that might have been cladding up his um, cladding up his judgment on that matter through his wife. Uh, none, none like that at all. But um, but the sport was looked at as this just just a blood sport. And thankfully, through some of his political connections and some of the Fertitta's own connections in the Republican Party, uh, or thankfully for them, I should say, you know, they got the uh, the unified rules of mixed martial arts 
uh, printed out in New Jersey, and they started to be able to legitimize the sport. Now, this is very interesting because the first venue that wound up holding a UFC event post um, post their acquisition was the Trump Taj Mahal in Atlantic yeah. City, hosted uh, UFC 30 and 31, I believe. But Dana White's relationship with Donald Trump then goes back about two decades as well, because Trump, again, to his credit, I suppose, if you're a fan of the promotion, really helped resurrect the UFC's financial fortunes. He was one of the first people to actually take a chance on hosting, hosting fights in his casinos. And... Um, so that was really where things began to turn around. And then slowly over these over those next couple of years, obviously, the Ultimate Fighter came out. He was a bit big on reality TV, and that paid off very well. Really, uh, Forrest Griffin stepping on is kind of like the year zero moment, I think, for the promotion where you can really rate everything by, like, if it was before that fight or if it was after that fight. And then uh, the fortunes the promotion have taken off ever since then. As their, as their scope has grown around the world, uh, his initial, uh, you know, maybe, maybe questionable judgment decision to work with this Trump guy, who uh, you know at that time was pretty notorious in uh, in the Northeast for being a shady businessman, had a lot of lawsuits against him, was notorious for just like having projects done and just straight up not paying people, finding some sort of like contractual loophole to get out of paying guys at the time. I know, uh, I know, my uncle actually was a bondsman back in the back in New York City in the '80s, and there was like a standing order from his company to never do business with the guy, you know. And that's going back like you know 30, 40 years at this point. But that initial like um, right-leaning, unethical business practice sympathy really carried through and has been magnified to tremendous proportions. And the thing about this is, if you think maybe we're being a little too hard on Dana White today, you know, the one thing I will say about that is that. Well, like Nick mentioned in the beginning of this, you know, Dana White exerts, there's two things here. Dana White exerts a uniquely personal control over this promotion to a degree that uh, you don't see in a lot of other major American sports or major leagues at all. You know, the only one that's comparable, like we mentioned up front, is uh, Vince McMahon of the WWE, because that really was his brainchild in a lot of ways. But Dana White is really also the only constant over these last 20 years. So when you look at... Um, you know, the sweet deals that have been made with like Kadarov in Chechnya, when you look at um, when you look at the UFC, UFC's endorsement of Bolsonaro, when you look at all the Trump stuff that's come out these last years, when you look at just every little bit of questionable dealing that has been made, Dana White is really the only constant through all of this stuff. So at any point, if you're talking about the UFC as this unethical organization or as this organization with deep, deep problems and how it does business, and, you know, legitimate things that people can gripe about. You really can't make any heads or tails of any of this without at some point putting Daniel White at the center because he's always been at the center. That was a very insightful, nice five-minute telling of the UFC's history because that is a part of the story, and it's you can still see it in the way that Dana White does everything now. It's He still acts like, you know, he's broke and that this promotion is struggling week by week, and it's why any possible way to make money they do to make money and yes that that's the point of running a business you want to make money you want to make profit but at some point you got to take care of your workforce you got to take care of your company you once you're financially stable enough i think at some point you have to take a personal responsibility for the health of your organization and like the other contact sports like football like hockey the ufc has a lingering well, the sport is slowly killing our workforce over time, but once they retire, we're not going to be financially liable for the work they put in for 10 years of their life, 15 years of their life. And it raises a legitimate moral question of, 
how do you protect these guys once they're no longer active fighters? And you get into things like unionization, which Dana White is vehemently opposed. You get into the earning potentials while they're still active fighters. I know they got rid of the individual sponsorships in favor of the universal Reebok branded merchandise, that kind of stuff. Just how do we protect the people who are fighting for their entertainment? Well, it is really, it's absurd how the revenue gets split in this promotion. You know, uh, Dana White recently said, um, I believe I, I believe I pulled this off a bloody elbow. I might be wrong about that. But uh, White reported that uh, the UFC made $900 million in revenue in 2020. And this is even with, you know, the pandemic, the pandemic doing what it did to pay-per-view buys. Oh, well, not pay-per-view buys necessarily, but actually like the, the physical gates or the attendance that these guys used to get at these, at these arenas. And before that, you know, the UFC had pulled in reliably a couple billion dollars on a yearly basis. And, you know, recently the promotion was valued at $7 billion, which is crazy when you look at the actual payouts for these fighters. You know, and I think it's one of the big reasons that people talk about unionization. I mean, there's a lot going for it, but the purely financial argument is really right there. You see in unionized sports leagues, um, you know, with, uh, I'll just say the four major professional sports leagues in America, the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, and MLB generally have an owner to play a revenue split of something around 50 to 50. Now, again, the UFC is a little bit different. The UFC has an ownership group at this point. It's not just White. White is technically its president and its leading face, but there are a couple different owners. But obviously, it's not a, it's not a franchise system. But you're talking about a company that is reliably pulled in a couple billion dollars. Meanwhile, right now, or at least as of a couple of years back, I believe the current split for UFC fighters at this point, as far as revenue is 18%. So what this looks like in practice is uh, let's go back to, let's go back to UFC 26. I pulled some numbers for this. UFC 26, if you guys remember, was uh, Conor McGregor's last outing against Cowboy Cerrone. And I pulled this for a couple of reasons. One, because this is before the pandemic. So you actually have, you know, ticket buys affecting and inflating in a lot of in a lot of cases people's salaries whereas you know during the pandemic there was naturally you know a little bit of a decrease in revenue so i want to be as fair as possible to the promotion here and again because this is a mcgregor fight you're also talking about elevated pay-per-view buys but without the splits which are generally generally fighters only see pay-per-view revenue the pay-per-view splits at the highest levels of the promotion so you're talking like championship contenders and champions and like just really like conor mcgregor level kind of fighters but without accounting for pay-per-view splits, uh, Conor McGregor made $3 million in his fight against Cowboy. Uh, Cowboy himself made $200,000. So, you know, again, this is a consequence of the UFC, of UFC fighters being independent contractors, is these guys can sometimes, you know, make very cushy deals for themselves, but below the highest echelon, uh, the revenue starts to drop off quickly. Holly Holm, made about $150,000. She was the co headlining the co-main fight. And this is another point, actually, that's been brought up uh, when the Teamsters and the Culinary Union tried to uh, organize UFC fighters back in, I believe it was 2015. They were saying that the gender pay gap in the sport is something like, you know, something like women fighters make something like 40 to 60% of what men make on average. And I, again, I don't have the specific figures for that, but generally speaking, like you do not see the highest earners at most cards be women in any case even when it comes to like amanda nunez she winds up being usually the co-main you know and it is a newer and these women's divisions are a little newer 
but um, it's almost like startup culture. I was thinking about it when you were talking about it because you're right. You know, Dana White very much has this chip on his shoulder. And I think, um, you know, like a lot of people in the sports world in sort of dominant positions, he wants to look at things like he wants to look at the landscape, like, oh, you know, the UFC is being doubted and we're really scrappy underdogs here. It's like, um, I think someone was saying this the other day on Twitter about like, you got to give Tom Brady his due, man. Like, I, who in the world is not giving Tom Brady his due? They mentioned it in the last dance, you know, Michael Jordan and the Bulls in the 72 season. Everyone in the world knew that that team was fantastic, except for those guys themselves. They thought that everyone was down here. And it's kind of like a startup culture because you see, like, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people seem to be paid on promises. You know, this thing keeps on growing and it keeps on growing and it keeps on growing. And, you know, the people who got it on the ground level, in a lot of cases on the corporate side, wind up doing okay. I mean, the promotion was sold for like $4 billion a couple of years back. But you still have these absurd splits in revenue, which is doubly insane because you're talking about a sport where people, you know, routinely put their lives at risk and routinely set themselves up for brain damage. I don't know. There's a couple ways we can go with this. But as far as UFC, UFC 246, the reason I wanted to bring this up, Conor McGregor, wind up making $3 million when you don't account for pay-per-view splits. Uh, Cowboy Cerrone, his opponent, wound up making $200,000. These are, you know, again, this is main event in a Conor McGregor fight. So not only is this the highest echelon of UFC payment in general, it's also Conor McGregor. So there's this extra little bit of, you know, casual fans coming in. This is, this is about as much money. This is about as big a payday as you can get in this promotion. You know, championship fighters, who headline other events usually get something like 500,000 uh, if they win. But uh, there's another comparison that's good to make here of the sport that uh, with the sport that gets actually less revenue overall, I think at this point, but Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder too happened about a month after UFC 246 and Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder last I checked got before pay-per-view buys, before pay-per-view splits were accounted for, they each got $28 million for that fight. And you might think, you know, maybe this is a more popular event. I feel like sometimes boxing gets hyped up at the highest levels, maybe a little bit more than UFC, which is behind because I think on average UFC is more popular at this point. But there were a million pay-per-view buys for UFC 246, and there were only about eight hundred to 850000 for Fury Wilder too. So this doesn't really make a lot of sense until, again, you look at the fact that so much of the pie is going to ownership in this case. And what this also does is one of the only places where people can get this extra money, because like you mentioned with the Reebok deal, you know, sponsorship money has dried up for the most part, like the highest peaks of sponsorship money under the Reebok deal. Or if you're a champion caliber fighter, you get 40,000 a fight, which might sound like a lot, but you've got guys... You've got guys like Algernon Sterling when the deal was signed who said they took like a 90% cut in what they could make on their own. And that's really hurt also this middle class of fighters who, you know, may have not ever contended for a championship, but, you know, if you put Condo Depot on the back of their shorts, you know, maybe they can get by, you know, making a living, beating the shit out of other people. But one of the only other places left to make a little bit of extra money now is the performance bonuses, which you can yeah. usually get like, you know, $50,000 or so for a particularly good performance or a fight of the night bonus, even though, uh, you know, the way that those adult out can kind of be, can kind of be erratic. But what this does in practice is it incentivizes, it incentivizes a kind of fighting that does damage to people, you know, obviously for a lot of people, you know, knockout artists and strikers like Conor McGregor, it's one of the reasons he's so popular is because, you know, 
in his prime, the guy had a left that could put anyone on the ground. And, you know, those fights might be short, but they're also really exciting. You know, things like the flying knee from Jorge Masvidal are crazy. And a lot of people could appreciate that on a casual level more than maybe, you know, 25 minutes of grappling or, you know, Khabib, Khabib Nurmagomedov taking some guy down, tying up his legs, sitting on him and punching him, and then, you know, putting him in a rear naked choke at some point. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but what happens because of these performance bonuses and because of the way that revenue is so you know, inadequate when compared to other sports, but also in the case of the UFC, it's so tilted towards the highest levels. Like a lot of these guys don't get to fight full time until they're well into their professional careers. Dominic Cruz a couple of years back was still working jobs when he, second jobs when he was when he was fighting in the UFC. Dominic Reyes, I actually talked to him about a year ago, I think until very recently, was still an IT guy on the side. But um but what happens is because of this is that people are incentivized to get to that highest level of the, of the promotion as quickly as possible. So they do this through a couple of ways. You can do this through, you know, having some really exciting fights, knocking the crap out of somebody, which again, isn't necessarily, isn't the worst thing in the world, but you know, when there used to be a healthier split of like submission artists, of wrestlers, of grapplers, and of people who could just kind of like score on points a lot of times, you know, those guys exist to a lot, to some extent, at some point or another, but it sort of shifts the balance in the UFC towards people who just want to try and hit some guy out because everyone at this point is trying to hit a home run and get that little bonus like Ralph Kiner used to talk about. But on the other end, the other thing that you can do to boost your own profile is to have some sort of personality or gimmick or some sort of way to distinguish yourself because I think people forget, you know, UFC and fighting in general tends to attract a lot of like, for lack of a better word, maybe fringe people. I think, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons you have so many like wacko alt-right dudes in the <laughs> sport. But at the same time, most of these guys, when you really get down to it, are pretty much like all professional athletes, you know, boring and dedicated to the to their craft. You know, I think sometimes people um, I think sometimes people get the wrong view of like high level professional athletes when you get to remember like what these guys have spent, you know, most of their waking hours doing is like practicing takedown drills or shooting free throws. I think um Joe Morgan actually made this point a while back in his memoirs where he was um, talking about a, this was brought up in relation to a teammate of his who passed a couple of years back. I forget his name exactly, but he was talking about how um, he almost felt like he regretted some of his playing career because he was so dedicated to what he did and he was so good at what he did when you look at it. You know, it's very funny that he's so anti-sabermetrics because they speak so well to his career, but um he talked a lot about, uh, you know, he spent most of his nights in hotel rooms. You know, Larry Bird talks about when he was a kid, you know, on Friday nights, he was usually in the gym hitting free throws. And generally speaking, like a lot of these guys are dedicated to their craft to get to this level. But, you know, once you get here and you realize that, um, you know, just like, you know, a little bit of submission work, a little bit of wrestling work, you know, maybe a knockout or two isn't necessarily going to get you above the fray. Then you see guys going after these insane gimmicks. You see guys like Conor McGregor, I think is like a legitimately erratic dude. And there are a lot of legitimately erratic dudes in the sport. But when you look at a guy like Sean O'Malley, when you look at a guy like even Colby Covington, I think, who, um, who according to like Masvidal and all these guys, was just kind of a regular dude uh, back in the day when they were teammates, who has gone like full MAGA psychopath. I think there's really no way to look at that except as like this desperate attempt to try and gain some sort of notoriety and it's paid off for him to this point too. He's made a lot more money and has a lot of higher profile than he would have at the end of the day. But 
I think the thing that's particularly insidious about all of this is that, um, you know, the thing that is so appealing, at least to me as a fan, and I think to a lot of people about mixed martial arts, is that it's genuine. You know, I remember being, a, I remember when I was a kid and UFC first started getting big, the thing people he was always used to contrast it with was wrestling, because wrestling was this overbloated production uh, full of full of these storylines and everything, and you know, you can say what you want to about the athletic ceiling of those guys and the performances they put on. They're legitimately laudable. But obviously, this is buried between like, you know, 500 feet of circus clown bullshit at this point. And a lot of people get turned off by that. A lot of people get turned off by the performative aspect of it. And that was the one thing the UFC has always had going for it is like, you really can't, to, to some degree, like knowing short of just outright faking fights, which has never been, which has never been the way this stuff has really been done, at least in UFC. There's really not a lot you can do to mess with that legitimacy, to mess with that genuine nature of this, and I think it really does the sport as a whole a disservice when you get to a point where these guys are out here trying to be something they're not, when they're trying to, you know, pump up their personalities to a way that, in a way that is artificial. And I think in a lot of I think in a lot of cases they have no choice but to do this because the career windows for these guys are so short and they're so fraught with risk. But a lot of this again could be fixed with unionization, with a more equitable pay distribution, and even just if the power structure of the promotion were less unipolar or were less completely centered on Dana White, you've got a chance to have the same kind of I don't want to speak highly of like the NFL or the MLB when it comes to ethical stances or politics. But you can see even in even in places where the ownership group is varied like that, where there's like 30, 32 guys who are the face of the or who are heading up franchises and then an entire players association behind that. You see a lot of times that there's at least like a corporate blandness to a lot of the messaging. You know, you see like, you know, hollowed out, hollowed out, like hollowed out political statements or uh you know, Colin Kaepernick getting eviscerated when he took a knee and then like Jerry Jones is on the, the Dallas Cowboys star a year back or so doing it with all his players with that little like shitty grin in his face. But you at least get to a point where like, you know, you don't have guys making it in those leagues when they go out on TV and they say that their opponent is up here like throwing smoke signals back and forth to his tribe like Covington did with Kamaru Usman a while back. That's like not permissible in a lot of these environments because there is a little bit of a division of power there and there's a little bit of a division of authority. Whereas in the UFC, it's really just like if Dana White likes you or not. And if he does, you're cool. And if not, uh, you really can't get away with anything. I feel like this should be more of a conversation. I feel like I keep on rambling. No, that you are, I brought you here as an expert source on this. I want you to give your opinion and the things you know about this, because this is something I don't know as much about. Like I know the large scale issues. I read the news stories. I, I keep up with it, but I'm not as invested as you are. And I can't speak as authoritatively as you do, which is why I wanted you to come talk about this. So the next thing I wanted to bring up was just the whole, like to your point about the, the state of play within the UFC being this kind of unethical circus where Dana White just kind of goes on his whims, whether it's deciding where to hold events, who's getting what match, how money is getting divided, who gets the performance bonuses, that kind of stuff. All of this is propped up within the UFC media echo chamber, which is one of the things that, as someone with a news background, you and I can both understand. Just when you read most UFC news, you understand that this is 
glorified public relations that ESPN, who is the most well-known sports media entity on the planet, they, they're co-partners with the UFC. They bought the catalog to put it on their streaming service. They host the pay-per-views through their streaming service. You have to pay for their streaming service just to be able to buy the pay-per-view, which is really kind of unfair and, and a cost barrier for a lot of people. And it brings me to the point I want to make, and I'm going to open it up for you in a second, is just at some point, this house of cards has to kind of fall on itself because, you know, you're going to run out of people who can fight in this environment for as who are entertaining. It's one of the problems that I know you mentioned the WWE before has is the WWE has a hard time building up new stars that are credible where there aren't Stone Cold, there aren't Rocks, there aren't even John Cena's anymore. The UFC is not running out of people, but because there's so much roster turnover, because people can't stay as long, because people feel they're being unfairly compensated. Like, McGregor has to threaten to retire after every fight because he feels like he deserves more money, where, you know, if they just unionized and got a more equitable split, you you wouldn't have to worry about that. You could get guys into a better routine of, you know, you get two or three fights a year, every single year, and that's it. No matter what, that that's something you could iron out in a unionization plan. That all feeds into this unhealthy world where because the media doesn't fairly report on what UFC does, there's not really this uproar amongst the casual fan to be like, hey, that's fucked up. My favorite fighter only made 75 grand to get his face caved in. Maybe we should do something about that. There's just there's no critical view of the UFC aside from the people who are in the news business. And I think it's tough, like you said, because, you know, I don't want to I don't want to rag on any individual journalists at ESPN or any individual personalities. You know, I think there is a space in the media landscape for like an Ariel Helwani or even like an Adam Schefter kind of guy who is just here to report on like transactions, because these are such large companies that there is a niche for that sort of thing. But I think what it comes down to on an institutional level, while like really no one individually, I think, is doing necessarily a bad job. It's like you said, you know, the the main venue for sports reporting on this planet at this point is a broadcast partner with the UFC. So I think on an, an institutional level, that creates an environment where you just can't hold these guys to account the same way. And again, Dana White is such a sensitive baby that like even Ariel Helwani got a lifetime ban a couple of years back for reporting. I think I think it was um, I think he reported on. Uh, a McGregor Diaz fight being an up coming up, and I think he mentioned that uh, the UFC was planning to bring Brock Lesnar back for UFC 200, and he got a lifetime ban. He got called back by public by public relations with uh, with Esther Lynn, uh, another UFC photographer. Great work, by the way. But um, they got banned explicitly by Dana White himself. He said, "You guys are too negative," which is crazy to me because it's Ariel Helwani. And one of the reasons that that band was rescinded is because a lot of fighters like Ariel Helwani, and he's a good dude. But, um, you know, when you look at like a guy like a Kareem Zidane over at Bloody Elbow or over at The Guardian, who's like consistently reporting on the way that the UFC is tied into relations with authoritarian regimes, when you look at really Bloody Elbow in general, I think that's a fantastic job. And anyone who wants like actual critical reporting done of the UFC should really be following bloody elbow on a consistent basis. I'm a huge fan of um, John Nash, Trent Ryan Smith, 
Kareem Zidane again. I, I'm really I'm really here just to be like a worse version of Kareem Zidane at the end of the day. You know, John Boyce and Felix Biederman with uh, Fighting in the Age of Loneliness a little while back. Felix has actually done some good stuff too on, uh, on, a, on a contributing basis for um, the artist, the site formerly known as Deadspin back in the day before it got all scabbed out. But uh, thankfully, the fact is going. But, you know, the point being in a general in a general overview of the situation is that really like you don't learn about you, you don't learn about the numerous ethical violations and malpractices that this promotion has undertaken until you get away from the bubble created by a place like ESPN or from I think a lot of people that just have an inclination, you know, like whether it be Barstool or uh, I'm not going to say SB Nation because Bloody Elbow and MMA Fighting are both uh, subsidiaries of SB Nation. But I think sometimes it's very easy for sports reporting as an industry to get caught up in fandom as well. And again, there's a time and a place for that. But these are large companies that need to be reported on well. They need to be reported on critically and they need to be reported on with an adversarial sort of bent to it, you know, where people don't have to necessarily be worried about getting invited back to a venue. And that's why you see so much of the best, most critical work done about the UFC and so much of the work done to dig into the details of like what makes this promotion work is done by people who don't necessarily have to worry about like whether this affects the broadcast or whether this affects broader business relations and it's such an important thing for media to be independent you know maybe not unbiased all the time you know I think uh, I think that conversation is overplayed to an extent I wrote about this in current affairs a little while back I don't really think there is such a thing as an unbiased reporter at the end of the day, because we're all people. And I think we'd all be better off if we just kind of stated that out front instead of trying to hide it. But independence is a very good thing to strive for. You know, not taking money from the people that you're supposed to be covering fairly and accurately is just kind of a prerequisite, I think. So I don't really think there's a lot that can be trusted about um, <coughs> media that is so heavily invested in the financial success of the UFC. Because ESPN is pushing for pay-per-view buys just as much as anyone. Yep. You know, they're putting together the promotional packages just as much as anyone. And that's why you didn't really see – you saw nothing over this last week leading up to the McGregor-Poirier fight about the news that Conor McGregor's – that Conor McGregor's uh, former rape accuser, who I think the, I think the criminal suit got dropped. I'm not sure about the yeah. exact details, but I know there's, there's a civil suit between – I think it's her and her mother are pressing a civil suit for sexual assault. And again, this is like, this is something that you just did not hear about if you were only following ESPN, you know, and that leads to a situation where like, you know, I think the people who actually report on this stuff are sometimes left out to dry because they see, they seem so contrarian by contrast to people who just kind of want to, you know, watch these fights and watch these people. And I think it just creates a very unhealthy dynamic and anyone who is involved in MMA Twitter knows exactly what I'm talking about when I say that UFC fans online are uh, they're, they're just beautiful people. They're beautiful people. It's just, it's so crazy to me. Like Dana White is such a baby <laughs> that Ariel Hawani got a, got a lifetime ban of all people. Now, Sherdog, I think had his credentials revoked back in like 2010. I don't think he ever got those back if I'm not mistaken. And this is like, that's, that's like the, the MMA Elias sports bureau right there. Yeah, it's insane to me. And 
I understand that like the circus is kind of part of the environment. That's why you do things like weigh-ins. That's why you do things like media day where you have everyone up there on the stage and Dana in the middle being the carnival barker trying to get everyone all riled up. So that something happens. Yeah, he always then... he always has to pull the guys off each other. Yeah. You know, they're always just just raring to commit assault. Yeah, <laughs> which is one of the things that no one ever talks about. You know, you start throwing hands at a way, and people get get arrested for that. You know, like even though McGregor didn't really end up facing any consequences for throwwing a dolly through a bus window, he got what he spent like an afternoon in jail. Uh, the, there are you have to at some point hold these people accountable. You know, you can't just let an organization do whatever it wants and it's going to flow into the rest of these topics i have on our rundown here where you know maybe someone should critically be assessing whether or not you should be holding an event on an island from that's an authoritarian regime that built the island with slave labor whether or not you should be cozying up to the you know not joe rogan but joe rogan adjacent people that kind of thing where all of this kind of bleeds into each other it, it bleeds into like you know should the face of our organization be someone with a sexual assault allegation an assault case someone who's probably not like, like three the most, i think yeah multiple assault cases <laughs> where like he punched that old man he knocked that guy's phone out of his hands like a legitimately like if you don't want to say an accused sexual assault person bad Yes, we can all agree. You don't want that kind of person being the face of your organization. And just like, you know, he's not a well-balanced individual. He does not deal with certain types of things very well. He's not a people person. And then just, you know, all of this against the backdrop of these are people fighting for not great paydays in a sport that cues them up and will spit them out very easily. And then you end up fighting on Bellator, on Spike TV at one in the morning on a Saturday in the middle of July. It's a very self-fulfilling system that it's really going to, it's probably never going to get right, unfortunately. I think it's sad also, not only from a moral level and an ethical level to be promoting guys like this, but even just from the level of imagination when it comes to this sort of production. Like I get, you know, MMA in in its professional capacity owes a lot of its promotional aspects to, you know, mixing with wrestling. You know, there's a lot of, I mean, professional wrestling is not necessarily the same as wrestling the sport all the time, but you know, a lot of these guys, a lot of the guys on the business side come from the same background and a lot of like the hype and the buildup that you see before these fights and the press conferences, like they, they can be traced genealogically to, you know, what an organization like the WWE does, but it's just so crazy to me that you have a situation where every single person that is employed in your organization and fighting with you has at some point in their life made the decision to beat the shit out of other people for a living and to have people attempt to beat the shit out of them. And you can't really find any, any other way to promote that besides like, ah, oh, these guys really hate each other. And it's so funny because, you know, the couple of times when that facade is broken and you get people who actually hate each other, um, you know, that can make for a good fight narrative beyond, you know, without all other things being equal, you know, without actually looking at the implications of, again, someone like a Colby Covington being promoted by the organization against Kamaru Usman, who that was, but that was a great fight. You know, if you're talking about like an underdog story, you, you get to watch that dude break Colby Covington's jaw in the third round, you know immigrant coming over declaring that he's going to do that for all the immigrants of the country just saying he wants to fuck this guy up you know i think the last fight he had been down in brazil of all places you know calling people down their animals which is again doubly insane just 
from the perspective of mixed martial arts as a sport. But again, it's this incessant need for circus act bullshit that I think does a lot of people a disservice because it cuts into, again, what I, what I at least think is the strong, was at least for me, the strongest aspect of why the sport was appealing to me. You know, I have a martial arts background, so I always understood. No, I'm not saying I'm like, I'm not saying I'm good at any of this stuff, but I understand MMA on a technical level a lot more than I do other sports. So I've always been able to appreciate like grappling and submission fighters as well, more than uh, maybe people who are just coming into this, coming into this uh, dry without any of that sort of background. But it's that genuine, it's that genuine nature of what's happening in the cage that I think is so appealing to people, you know, whatever's happening in your life, whatever's happening outside in, in the world around, you know, this is the point that John Boyce and Felix Peterman made in fighting in the age of loneliness. You know, we might be, uh, I think there's a reason that UFC got so big in the United States in the middle of the Iraq war in the middle of the Bush years, you know, we might be invading two countries on faulty premises and being misled by the federal government, but like, Oh, that guy just beat the shit out of that guy. Like there's, it's not lying to you. It's, there's just no way to dress that up. And I think it's really sad that so much of this promotional bullshit reeks of disingenuity because it gets, it undermines the very nature of what makes this stuff compelling in the first place is that it's just so raw and so real. And again, you know, these are, I don't know. Like I said, I think from a narrative perspective, there is like, it's really like a fill in the blank situation when someone decides to beat the shit out of someone for a living, like whether they're like a stoic and professional and quiet dude who is under assuming, and this just like happens to be how they, uh, how they apply their athleticism, whether they are, you know, some insane, genuinely unhinged person, whether they are, you know, desperate to make some sort of fame for themselves or raise their families out of poverty, whether they're coming from war-torn countries. There's just, I don't think there's any way to spin the narrative of a fight and a fighter that isn't in some way interesting. And I think it, not only does it speak to the ethical problems here, but it just speaks to the lack of imagination that all these guys can ever come up with is, oh, you know, these, these guys really don't like each other. Which also cheapens the moments of like, you know, you do. know, Dan, Daniel Cormier and John Jones being on uh, being on hot mics after their interview and going, you know, I'm going to spit in your eye, dude. You <laughs> you spit in my eye, I'd kill you. I'd actually kill you. You know, those, those guys really hate each other. But, um, but that's what I mean. Like when you when you see guys who actually hate each other, you know, it makes a lot of this just seem ridiculous. As someone who loves baseball and loves hockey i empathize with this worldview 100 percent because i understand that they've tried to make the focus of the game not the individuals and it's why there are no baseball or hockey stars anymore in the united states is the game is so good that you don't need you know no one is bigger than the team is the biggest problem hockey has and it leads to you know bad teams getting national media recognition just because, you know, they were good 30 years ago and it's led to kind of a hollowing out of hockey and to some extent baseball too, where there just isn't a recognizable thing. And I think part of what UFC has done is they're really good at manipulating a news cycle is, you know what, there's a pandemic going on. There's no sports. What are we going to do? We're going to do fight Island. It's gonna be like, enter the dragon. They're going to come to the beach and they're going to fight under the palm trees. Uh, well, no, they're going to fight in an arena built on an island in the middle of a Formula One track, and there's a golf course right there, and there's a basketball arena, and there's a hotel, and there's a casino. It, it doesn't matter. It, 
I don't want to say it's like hooker by crook, but it, you know, they're doing whatever that, they want. That shit was doubly hilarious too. And I'm surprised. I didn't really, I don't feel like I saw a lot of people talk about this, but the fact that fight Island was hyped up to the extent it did. I, I really should have gone out and predicted this earlier on, but like, it was always going to be Yas Island. They tried to they tried to make it like this big mystery reveal, but the UFC's been hosting events at Yas Island for a decade now. And the moment the moment I heard they were doing they were doing a some remote island where they were hosting fights, I'm like, okay, this can't be in the U.S. right now because that was like the five seconds that anyone was taking this this pandemic seriously that that was announced. And it's like very clear, like, okay, where's the where's the small re- well not remote, but where's the island? that has hosted fights in the past. Like, oh, okay, here we go. I was stupid. I actually was believing the whole, like, they were going to try and buy the guy who owns Virgin's Island to put fights on on the beach in the Caribbean and be like, you know, basically fire Festival, but for UFC is kind of what I imagined, where I'd be like, you know, these guys are going to come to the beach for a week and then they're going to fight on the Saturday night and then they're going to leave the island because you know you can't you can't risk it you can't these are world class athletes you can't risk them being around other people in a Would, pandemic wouldn't that have been great though like oh we gave Amza Chimaev nothing but bread and cheese for three weeks <laughs> yeah. here, here he is with no iron in his system he's like yeah. yellow yeah they're steep Amy Ocha to running wind sprints in the sand getting ready for his fight against Daniel Cormier uh. I, I pictured something a little more you know actually fight island but I, I i was a little naive i actually that, believed they were going to buy richard branson's island that would have been fantastic and much less evil than yes. what wound up happening too because <laughs> yeah. you know i know i know we mentioned it before but um you know one of the things that anyone could do if they want to check this out is uh google earth has archival images going back uh going back several years and if you want to hover over to yas island in abu dhabi you can slide it back, I believe, as far as I, I know I did I did an article on this a couple months back and I don't remember the specifics of it. I think it was but I think you can go back, Yeah, I think you can go back to like 2005, 2007 and have like actual like good satellite imagery of that region. And there's just nothing there. Yep. There is absolutely nothing. The the roads don't even look like they're paved. And yep. I, I don't know, maybe they were paved, but they were like one lane thing, but there was like literally nobody living on the strip of land. And that was true of a lot of the UAE in general until like the 90s uh because the country was just i mean just look at where it is it's in the middle of a desert um but you see within a couple of years like uh like nick mentioned you see the ferrari ferrari world amusement park you see a formula one track you see you know the first couple of stadiums and concert venues that got built now uh, i think most recently now etihad arena was just uh debuted with that uh with our last ufc with our last series of fight island events but um, there is no way to develop an island in the desert that thoroughly within that short a time span. We're talking like really like three years from nothing until like multiple residential neighborhoods and amusement park and just like like basically like Disney World out in the Persian Gulf. Yeah, rich people. There's no way. There's no way to do that without labor abuse. And w- what that took the form of is um, is the kafala system, which if it's not slavery. It's only not slavery because it's technically not slavery. What happens is, uh, to my knowledge, and I, again, I'm not an expert on this, but what I understand the Kapala system to be is that um, is that migrant workers are brought into the UAE under sponsorships, and the people who sponsor them, you know, usually business owners and the people who wind up kind of controlling their their fortunes, are also responsible for like you know 
housing them and where they get to live and if they get to leave and if they have like visas to leave the country. And a lot of these guys wind up being put up in basically tenement housing, again, in the middle of the desert. So it's like 100 degrees minimum. You've got people, you know, Qatar, I know, yeah, came under fire for this with the um, with their preparation for the World Cup. There was a point, I believe, when one guy a day on average was being killed mm-hmm. uh, building those stadiums, which is still happening, by the way, because whatever you want to say about the UFC, FIFA is the infinitely more corrupt organization. Yeah. It's like not even close. But um, but again, you've got a situation where. You know, all this stuff was put together by abused migrant laborers. You've got the guy who is the face of Flash Entertainment, which is a UAE-owned, which is owned by the UAE royal family. It's kind of like the entertainment side of the royal family's business empire. At one point, had a 10% stake in the UFC, which is deal brokered by Sheikh Tanun bin Zayed, who is right now, uh, they have since divested themselves of Flash, but obviously, like, you know, with the business, with Fight Island, being the clear example, you know, there's still a friendly business relationship there. But uh, Sheikh Tanun, who was the guy who, you know, brokered that deal for the UAE and who, if you go on his Instagram and you go on Dana White's Instagram, you can find plenty of pictures with him just hanging out. And uh, Sheikh Tanun is like, I know he runs a couple of, I think, Brazilian jiu-jitsu tournaments over there locally, but now he's the UAE's national security advisor. So he's the point man for, um, for their part of the war in Yemen, which has drawn numerous accusations of war crimes. And again, this is just like a thoroughly evil thing to be whitewashing. You know, Kareem Zidane calls it sports washing, which I think is really a good thing for it. But you've got to ask yourself why every time that we go to Fight Island, uh, you know, everyone's social media feed is just is just fraught with pe- yeah, fraught with promotional content about you know how kind everyone's been and how great Abu Dhabi is. There's just endless, you know, and beyond that, like, I'm sure people are nice, you know, because, you know, people, most places are nice, but um, there's just constant plugs for visit Abu Dhabi. There's constant plugs for tourism, which is doubly insane in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, you can't go five minutes in a commercial break on, on these fights without seeing some sort of promotional material for the UAE. And again, you know, this is all a very calculated thing to make the regime look a little better and for its international face to be, you know, oh, you know, this is where uh, we have the F- the Formula One stuff and the um, and the UFC stuff, and this is the playground of the world. And, you know, it's the same thing to a lesser degree. Well, I can't even say to a lesser degree, but maybe to a different degree. You know, off the top of my head, for three other authoritarians, UFC was a major part of Donald Trump's brand. It was a major part of his athletic brand. You know, Dana White commits himself to saying that he's not a political person, which is kind of insane because he's spoken at two Republican national yeah. conventions. And uh, I believe in February 20, 2020, he donated about a million dollars to a Trump super PAC. But uh, so that's just like not true. That's just categorically untrue. And again, you've got uh, the UFC has a very cushy relationship with Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil and a very cushy relationship with Hansa Catterall, which is made a lot more awkward right now by U.S. sanctions coming in. But um, you know, there are authoritarian regimes around the world that have used MMA as a way to bolster their own reputation, as a way to bolster their own prestige. And it's doubly sad because, you know, on a philosophical level, mixed martial arts is an inherently international thing. It is, it is a discipline, it is an art form that could not exist without the mingling of cultures from around the world. You know, MMA, as we know it, would not have existed if, um, if Mitsuyu Maeda 
didn't, you know, travel around South America and meet the Gracies and start teaching jujitsu to some Brazilian kids. And those Brazilian kids didn't come up to the U.S. and, uh, you know, do all their crazy, like, you know, we're going to beat the shit out of anyone thing. It wouldn't exist, you know, without the intermingling of wrestling, which is, you know, a discipline that has its origins in Greece thousands of years ago. There is just so much to love about MMA as a, as a thing because it really does speak to what can happen when people from different backgrounds mix together, you know? And that's it's like doubly insane to me that you would have a guy like Colby Covington in a sport like mixed martial arts. It, it's insane to me that you have nationalism in MMA at all and that you have MMA as a vehicle for boosting nationalism because it is in and of itself a testament to the to the fact that like you know mixing national identity and mixing culture from across from across a broad spectrum of peoples and backgrounds is a good thing that produces good things transitioning a little bit away from the more big picture like you know should we have sports in a pandemic anyway which is a discussion of itself which we probably shouldn't be having sports in a pandemic like actually actually can we speak about this because i almost forgot um, oh go sure for by all um, means so so there's been about to, to this point uh according to trent ryan smith again i i really cannot uh recommend following bloody elbow enough if you want to be kept the bridge on uh, what's going down in the world of MMA. But north of 50 fighters in the UFC have tested positive for COVID at one point or another, uh, nine days ago. Well, as of the time we're talking. So, so I think it was on January 16th, Paul Varlins, who was the runner up in UFC seven, uh, when Marco Huas run early, early pioneer of this sport, you know, broke bones and hurt himself to get, to get the sport to the point where it is now he died last week of COVID at like 51. I don't know if you guys remember what happened with Eduardo Rodriguez. Supposedly, uh, now with the heart problems that he mentioned he was having, supposedly he's going to make a full recovery, I remember seeing. And you got to think that these guys being at the peak of like a human achievement in athleticism have a better chance of recovering from COVID than others. But to roll the dice 50 times on that is just, again, again, it's something that I was going to say it's something that you would never see in a unionized workplace, uh, but the, the, the fact that the fact that the MBPA and the MLBPA have dropped the ball on this as resolutely as they have, and the NFL Players Association and the NHL Players Association is is baffling to me in its own right, but that's for another day. But um, it's just, again, like, a guy died. Yeah. Cole Harlins is dead right now. And, um, and you've still got this sport chugging on when when really all you need to do is just like not there's enough money there's enough money to just hang back for a little while you know you give people stipends and you could you know not take this risk you could just not take this risk i mean it's insane to me that we're at a place where you know dana white gets to put out videos about like you know people doubted us and you know we 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 got to push on through the pandemic like it's this great underdog story and not like a, a massively irresponsible thing <laughs> And I mean, combat sports is maybe uniquely well suited to being run in this sort of situation because even with like, even with like corner men and coaching teams and whatnot, you're you're generally talking about for like any given fight less people than uh, than like a team sports event. But again, it's still you're you're dealing with people who you know go back to hotels and they interact with other people. You know they have family, they have friends, and you know. They were uh, to whatever degree they're isolated, it's still a risk. And again, we've got 50 people now who've just given the 
weird haphazard way that long-term effects from this thing have doled out or doled out might at some point or another like really have serious health consequences down the road and this is beyond this is beyond just the regular serious health consequences down the road that getting punched in the head for a living can uh, can inflict on people it's it's just it's insane when the alternative is to just not take the risk and i mean ultimately you know the bigger thing is that like you know no government really took it seriously aside from china and it's why you know all right i don't want to give the chinese authoritarian regime credit okay but they took it seriously and they got it under control in a way that europe didn't the way north america or south america hasn't it's just because the government has um rejected responsibility for the situation they've let the sports entities make the decision for themselves in a way that like they probably shouldn't be because these are you know business ventures run by greedy people who at the end of the day or they have tv rights obligations to fulfill where you know if the nfl didn't play 16 games this year all those owners they would have noticed when their checks from fox from cbs nbc espn they didn't clear at the end of the month that these are all things where some adult at some point has to take responsibility and say well there's a pandemic going on not only should we not have people in attendance we should probably shutter things for a few months and try and get this back under control and then we can talk about sports again i forget who was the first person to write the column but it was basically sports and culture are the benefits of a functioning society and when society's not functioning you don't get to have them yeah it's um and again, I think, you know, ownership and management can be expected to do whatever they need to to maximize profits at the risk of their workforce, especially yeah. in, this, in especially in combat sports where on a good day, your workforce is going out and inflicting bodily and mental trauma on itself. But I think, you know, I think this is another thing that could have really been benefited from a unionized workforce. And this is another thing. I, I don't know. I don't want to I don't want to get sidetracked, but I really do. I've been meaning to put together something for a while now about how crazy it is to me that sports labor unions just kind of like let this go along. Like the Miami Marlins were like basically sacrificed at the beginning of the, in the beginning of the baseball season, like 30 of them tested positive and they just kept on going. Rudy Gobert, there were like two positive cases in the NBA and the, the whole thing shut down for months. And now it's just like a routine thing that people test positive and they fall out, and they come back in, and it's just, I don't know, it's crazy to me. This is, this is like, this to me, is like why you have a union that has the ability to strike, is so that you don't put people at risk like this. This is, I think, the Chicago Public School Teachers Association actually uh, just voted to uh, start teaching off, start teaching online, because with the numbers spiking, they're not, uh, they're, they can't condone putting themselves at risk and putting other students at risk, which, again, hats off to them. Yeah, no, going off of that, the one thing I do remember from last summer was back in like, I want to say it was late May, early June, when there was still some conjecture about what baseball was going to do. I do remember passing at ESPN saying that if the players striked because they felt the working conditions weren't fair or safe because of the pandemic, it was something like, I forget the word he used, like, it wasn't like a legal strike and like they would have had to go to court and that kind of thing. So I'm not 100% up on my labor law. I, I have the LSAT books behind me getting dust on them for a reason. But there are there's a lot of factors at play. And when you put all of these variables into a, the decision-making process, 
the people who make the money money, they're the ones who have the decision. Like, I forget, I think it's Chris Rock has the joke where it's like, you know who's rich? Shaq. You know who's really rich? The guy who writes Shaq's checks. That kind of thing. All right, now that we've kind of covered the moral, the ethical guidelines, we're going to branch off a little bit here into something I've kind of been coming to terms with as, like, you know, a person who used to really enjoy what Joe Rogan did. Like, I really, I learned a lot about the MMA world from him when he has, you know, yes, Eddie Bravo is kind of a lunatic, but when they're talking about Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I'm learning something from listening to them talk about it. Whether he's having, you know, comedians on where he's, I'm listening to Joey Diaz telling stories about selling Whitney Houston cocaine in the 80s in northern New Jersey. What I used to really enjoy what the Joe Rogan podcast was, and it's kind of, I don't want to say it lost its innocence for me, because it was obviously never that innocent of a space to begin with, but just like, with the benefit of like, a clearer state of mind, I guess you could call it, it's just, I don't get what the UFC is getting from him why he's their color commentator well Joe Rogan the thing that I think is important to understand about Joe Rogan is that Joe Rogan is like four different people in his <laughs> in his public facing life you, you've got you've got your stand up comedy Joe Rogan you've got your podcast Joe Rogan you've got your like your fear factor Joe Rogan and you've got your MMA Joe Rogan and MMA Joe Rogan, to be fair, has always been the Joe Rogan that I've been most amenable to. But that's probably just because he's been doing this shit forever. Mm-hmm. Joe Rogan was a college commentator for the UFC going back like 20 years. He was one of – and it's it's crazy because it really does go to show you in a positive sense like how much the sport has evolved that like Joe Rogan just like kind of having done jujitsu back in the day. <laughs> I think he might be a black belt. But, you know, Joe Rogan's like, you know, sort of, sort of milk toast understanding of the sport – put him in a position where he became like the like media guy for the UFC and the commentator for the UFC. And now every time he, and now every time he's on one of these fights, it's just him and like DC going like, Oh, oh my God, look at that. Oh, look at that leg kick. And there's not really a lot of like, you know, it's funny. I, I, uh, I don't think I ever realized just how lacking uh, a lot of USC commentary is until I started listening to Dan Hardy, who Dan Hardy will like actually pull out like, statistics and numbers and like striking facts in in a way that like it it makes everyone else by comparison it reminds me of um it reminds me of the uh, the scene in Moneyball where uh, where Billy Bean's talking to the scouts and they're uh, rating all the draft prospects and he's like ah you know the, that guy's got an ugly girlfriend that uh, ugly girlfriend means no confidence and that's like I swear that's where that's where most of these guys are even some of the professionals but I think Joe Rogan's just kind of grandfathered in at this point and then he became like hugely popular through his podcast stuff, which is, it's funny though, because he's like not even around all that much anymore at this point. But yeah, I don't know. He's a, he's a very strange dude. And uh, like I said, I've always had kind of a soft spot for him because, you know, going back to when I first started watching the sport in like 2006 or whatever it was, you know, back with like uh, UFC 86 and Rampage Jackson and Forrest Griffin and Rampage won that fight. I'm still very mad about that fight. Actually, I think I might have gone back recently and rescored it. I, I, that's right. After like 15 years of telling myself this, I, uh, leg kicks are very important, as we as we learned this last week. But um, you know, I've had it. I've had a, but you know, it's been Herb Dean and it's been Joe Rogan. Yeah, the whole time they've been the constants in that world for me, and uh, and I've always loved them. And now Joe Rogan is just kind of a vapid 
uh, Elon Musk galaxy brain uh, doofus. And Herb Dean is uh, really having a hard time not uh, not pulling guys off of each other when they're supposed to uh, not punch each other anymore. Man, it's it's sad to see. I gotta say, it's sad to see. I gotta say, as someone who's been seeing these guys since I was like ten years old, I don't like it. It's complicated because, like you had mentioned earlier, the whole the underlying right wing current of MMA, which I. I mean, you got to figure who's the ones going to the jiu-jitsu classes, who's going to boxing classes, that kind of thing. Just, I don't know if it's something about that worldview, something about that mindset that lends itself to, you know, I want to do shit with my hands, kind of causing problems for people. And you get to things like Covington just being outwardly racist as like a gimmick. You get to things like, you know, here's the host of, uh, here's our color commentator, and he's going to have Alex Jones for six and a half hours on his podcast. And the, the all these associations, all of these connections, I don't know exactly what they mean, but just, you know, you don't want to be one step adjacent to Alex Jones on anything if you're like, you know, a public company. Yeah, that's generally speaking a bad thing to be. And again, that's the kind of thing that could be remedied with even just a little parody in the ownership structure and the authority yeah. at the top. But again, with a union, with just a vested... I don't know. Enough of these guys are kind of wackos in their own right. That uh, maybe that's not maybe that's not quite the same. But just just I don't know. Give people some because it's not like we've said already. It's not an apolitical organization. And, and you know, Dana White. I remember came up after Colby Covington said some insane shit about Tyron Woodley, and I think he got up to the point. He was like, "Man, who's more about free speech than us?" Which is nuts because um, if you look back to it, um, Dan Hardy when he was going to fight in China, I believe it was, uh, Dan Hardy has a Buddhist tattoo. It's like, it's some like innocuous, like, you know, like motivational phrase. It's like live, laugh, live, laugh, love for like Buddhists in like Sanskrit or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, across his stomach. He really likes it. And it was scraped out of, it was airbrushed out of all the promotional material and all the posters because Dana White and the company were worried about how that would play in China. And again, like just, just, blatant hypocrisy here you know yeah i'm one of the other things i have there is the whole who they get their sponsorship money from who their partners are that kind of thing because you know these the people who run the ufc they they like their money it's why they run the ufc and you get to things that are like you know the black rifle coffee company that's like you know more or less just like an openly fascist coffee company that's like you know that guy who like murdered two people at a protest, we want him wearing our stuff. We're gonna send oh, that's him right. free They're stuff. That's right. They're sponsoring Kyle Rittenhouse. That's yes. right. They sent him free stuff like he was, you know. How are you gonna be fascist about coffee? Like of all things. It just seems such a it seems like such a weird brand yeah, <laughs> to go know. that insane on. Like you would think it'd just be guys making like tactical knives or something. <laughs> Selling the shit you see on like, you know, the MLB network at two in the morning, like the HD sunglasses. Yeah, exactly. Like that way, how are you gonna how are you gonna be Nazis and sell coffee? And then how are you gonna? That's another thing where like you know a single individual like with who's opened a public relations book at some point in their life could be like Dana, you don't want to take that check. I promise you, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. You don't want to be connected to those people. You don't want people in your organization wearing the T-shirt that says Black Rifle Coffee Company. You just don't. Where you know a little bit more of just other than someone's gut instincts making decisions would help 
you've alluded to it before, but now we're going to kind of, we kind of had our McGregor conversation a little bit earlier in the topic, but a little bit earlier in the episode when we were talking and just kind of the problems with, you know, no one really being able to do anything aside from act crazy to get attention to grow their brand and that kind of thing. Just, could you think of a comparison in any other sport? I mean, Mike Tyson boxing is the obvious one, but just an, an entity sticking their entire basket, all the eggs in the basket of someone who obviously isn't either of a rational state of mind to be the face of a company or just doesn't care, frankly. I guess on like on the completely opposite side of the spectrum, I guess the first thing that just came to my mind was Tiger Woods and golf. Uh, you know, <laughs> which is is really in retrospect, it's so insane. Like the dude like had a couple of affairs, which I'm not going to say every professional athlete cheats on their wife, but like every professional athlete cheats on their wife. Like, come on. I mean, not not that it's a good thing to do, but that's just that's some like innocuous personal stuff. And I think he got like a couple car crashes or DUIs later on. But the fact that that was just this massive fall from grace for him, and by extension, the sport as a whole, uh, really, really just seems insane in in the light of, like, everything that's happened. But I guess that's really, like, the only thing I could think of. Maybe, um, I don't know. I guess it must have felt pretty crazy for uh, the for the NBA when Michael Jordan just started retiring out of nowhere. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe, maybe that wasn't what happened. Uh, who knows? Uh, watch the last dance if you want, uh, you know, hard hitting uh, journalism. That's uh, you know, again, you know, we we love our we love our documentaries that are approved by the people that are uh, in them. Yeah, that are being that are being put in them. Yeah, we we love our uh, our impartial, hard hitting uh, sports news organization over here, folks, don't we? Yeah, because it again leads to. But it's oh, it's it's just it's. It's weird to me again, too, because um, I, I don't know. Conor McGregor, it's such a weird basket to put your eggs in because at this point, the dude's like three and three. Yeah. In the last like five or six years at this point, he barely fights in the UFC anymore. You know, he left to take the McGregor, the, the Floyd Mayweather fight and make a hundred million dollars in a loss. I, I can't believe he ever like decided to come back. I guess the dude really does love this stuff at the end of the day. But it just seems like such a weird basket to put all your eggs in when, like, that payout is only coming at this point, like, once a year, maybe, uh, based on how things are going. And that's, you know, if you're lucky, he doesn't catch a charge in the meantime. You know, and the same sort of thing happened with Ronda Rousey yeah. back in the day to, I guess, a lesser extent. But Ronda Rousey and Conor McGregor were really, like, the things for a little while there. But, you know, Holly Holm and then Amanda Nunes kind of put an end to that. But you've still got like like women's MMA is still chugging along. Like yeah. Amanda Nunes is the greatest female fighter in the history of the sport. I think bar none at this point. You know, Zhang Wei Li and Joanna Jurjetic had probably the best fight of 2020 last year, except for maybe you know the 25 minutes where uh, where Dan Hooker and Dustin Poirier just tried to kill each other yeah. last summer. That might have I, I might put that a little higher. But I mean, the sport has shown, and the fighters in it have shown that they are you know resilient and talented enough to rise up to the occasion after, you know, after any sort of like bigger than the sport personality is humbled or set aside at some point or another, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying this, like, you know, these guys have every right to negotiate for as much money as they want. I wish they would do that collectively and they have, you know, I would 
want more money to go to these guys in general. But again, the skill ceiling is such that like, you know, you, there will be another guy as crazy as Conor McGregor coming up. There will be fighters as entertaining as him at some point. I don't think you, it, it, again, I think it just speaks to a lack of imagination. And I think it also just speaks to the fact on some level that like Dana White likes the dude. You know, as much as as much as they've had problems, you know, Dana White gets along better with him than with a lot of these other guys. And uh, and I think when you're on, when you're in his good graces, you can do wild and crazy shit like that. You can have your corner man uh, call Khabib Nurmagomedov a fucking Muslim rat on uh, on live television, and you can you can portray that like uh, oh Khabib just flew off the handle here out of nowhere. Uh. You know, let's let's forget the assault charge before they. I, I don't know. I don't know. Khabib's his own. Khabib's got his own strange ties and and uh, a little too much uh, Katarov for my liking there as well. But it just goes to show you again the omnipresence of Dana White in the sport that like if he's cool with you, you can get away with shit that you can't get away with if uh, if he's not cool with you. Yeah, it's it's the peer enabler relationship. There's a mutual benefactory of. I mean, the biggest marketing thing ESPN had when they bought the UFC catalog was the 30-second McGregor commercial of him just doing ridiculous shit with an Eminem song playing in the background. Yeah. That was that was the entire, this guy's crazy. He could do anything at any time to anyone. Yeah, that's not good. He does bad things to people. You don't want that to be the face of your marketing campaign. But because, you know, ESPN is... A journalistic entity but also an entertainment company at the same time you you don't there's not critical assessments of these people's characters and again these all are these threads all bleed into each other there's an undercurrent that causes all of them to keep going and maintains this system that is working but could probably be a lot more efficient and streamlined if there were better people making decisions and again, you know, my, the point I wanted to make too is that like the way that the revenue is split, the way that the bonus system works, the way that the sponsorships work, it's not just something that's removed from, you know, these fights themselves. Again, it's, it's something that influences sort of the metagame that gets played here, you know, because people are incentivized to go for these bombastic knockouts. People are incentivized to try and develop some sort of personality or some sort of gimmick. And you might see those as good things. But again, I think my point is that it, it hurts the undercurrent of reality yeah. that I think has been so important to the sport getting as popular as it is and being as big as it is, is just that some, at some point or another, like, you know, whatever you think is going on here or whatever these guys are saying about each other, like they're going to beat the shit out of each other in a little bit, you know, and you can always look forward to that. And it goes back to, um, you know, it, it's so funny too, because um, I, I don't think these guys are committed to the bid all that much that much at some point or another too but you can see a lot of times one of my favorite things in fighting is um is watching two guys shit talk each other and you know do the do the hype thing for a couple of months and then get like a round or two into fighting each other or you know going through the fight and at the end of it they got their little moment and there's always there's almost always this little moment for for very rare exceptions um like covington uzman where, uh, where, you know, at the end of the fight, they have, like, this little nice bro hug. And it's like, oh, man, we did it. We made it together. These are guys that beat the shit out of each other not the 30 seconds earlier. What you have here is you have guys, you know, basically fighting for their livelihoods, fighting for their lives, who, generally speaking, don't dislike each other. And a lot of times actually really like the person they're across the, they're across the octagon for and have a lot of respect for them, which is the emblem, which is 
the reason you see so many like bro hugs at the end of these fights and so many embraces because and so much respect a lot of times between these guys because there's not a lot of people I think who can understand what they do. And even sometimes I think when these dudes have problems with each other, they beef a little bit. Like I think uh, Dom Reyes, John Jones, uh, a year ago back in February, you saw I think you saw the process of those two men developing respect for each other over the course of over the course of a five round fight as that fight went on, you know, because they went in. They went in talking all their shit against each other as people do, and, you know, whether or not they they believed it or sold it at one point or another. That's something only they know. But by the end of that, you could tell like they both they both respected each other afterwards. They talked about that and they got back to like, you know, some of the same kind of like, oh, you're just ducking me and you know, all that afterwards, but there's something real there. And there's something very compelling about that. You know? I think one thing we've really lost and never gotten back uh, from boxing is like the Burt Sugar sappy <laughs> feature writing that um, that used to characterize so much of boxing is like, you know, the, the struggle of humanity played out in the ring with the fist of the fighters, you know, and all that, all that kind of like bombastic stuff, which I think would translate just as well to MMA but for some reason I guess people don't see that same sort of romanticism and like pounding a guy's head through the pavement I, I I don't know what that's about but again it's there's so much there that I don't think you need to falsify that I don't think you need to dress that up in bullshit you know the, the fact that the sport got as big as it is without that or you know with that in a very limited quantity I think is a testament to that and if you had a situation where revenue was split a little more fairly, where guys had the security and the opportunity, maybe like multi-year contracts, God forbid, and like a little bit of protection from getting laid off to actually like, you know, develop unique skill sets and find out who they are and, you know, work that stuff out over the course of fights where, you know, not every good close fight needs to be run back in a trilogy. You know, if you had, again, just a little bit, a different ownership structure a little more power in the hands of the employees, a little more protection for these guys, and a little more money, which again is there. It's just not being spread around. You would see a sport again that I just I just think is healthier at the end of the day. At the very least, it's safer, so you've got people staying around longer. But again, it captures and I think a lot of people have been turned off by this in the last couple of years. You know, however many fans you you've gotten from guys like Conor McGregor, you've also got people who've, you know, been been watching this stuff for ages who look at this and they see it as like circus nonsense. And like you've seen with the WWE at some point that winds up being unsustainable. And at some point, I don't know. I think the demon, I think the demons will haunt, will haunt this promotion unless some sort of big structural changes actually start getting taking place. And uh, the one thing I am kind of encouraged by is uh, as far as the future of the promotion goes, is that um, Kung Lee and John Fitch's, antitrust lawsuit against the UFC was allowed to move forward as a class action. I think that ruling was made back in December. Now, I have no idea how long that's going to take because I think that suit was originally filed in 2014. So it's been a long time coming. But if this is eventually ruled in favorably, it opens up all sorts of prospects for, again, unionization and collective bargaining because basically they're contesting that the UFC is an illegal monopoly. It's artificially suppressing fighter wages, which I don't, I, I'm, I don't have enough legal training uh, to know whether or not that's true at some point, but like the UFC doesn't enjoy the same kind of uh, antitrust exemptions that like MLB, that the MLB and the NFL enjoy, which by the way, if you ever want to, I know where you're entering uh, law school. If you ever want to absolutely lose your mind, uh, read the decision in Kuhn versus flood, which is literally just like 
a Supreme Court justice talking about how like fun and special baseball is and then saying like and therefore uh and therefore you can't have uh the labor rights that uh, other American laborers are uh can enjoy. But you know, there's a chance there for some sort of good. I have no idea what sort of support that kind of organizing has in the actual like fighter base at this point. I think it's really tough. I don't think anyone's really going to come out and say it one way or another if they do support it, just because again, employment is so precarious at this point. It's like with, it's like with Instacart a while back, you know, everyone who voted to, to union has just got canned. But if there is some sort of chance, I think even beyond just like, beyond just like a more equitable pay distribution, I think you get with a little bit more separation of power in the UFC, you get a less evil promotion you get a promotion that is held accountable on uh, on multiple levels and by multiple people, a little less Dana White, maybe a little less insane far-right nonsense and authoritarian propping nonsense at all levels of the sport. I don't know. It, it might be wishful thinking, and maybe a lot of these guys don't care on one level or another, which, I don't know, it's their, pri- it's their privy, I guess. But, I don't know. This is That's just about the only thing. That, uh, that is making me encouraged at any point or another because these guys need a union like crazy, you know, between between just the level of damage these guys incur between what's happened with COVID. Again, I'll, you know, mention Paul Barlins himself passed, you know, at 51, which is, you know, not all that much older than Anderson Silva, I'll remind you, you know. And so many of these guys like Anderson Silva have to keep on fighting until their bodies just sort of give out. And again, that could all be fixed with a little bit, with a little bit of organization, with a little bit more wealth distribution. Like even boxing has beaten the UFC on this, at least at the highest levels, you know. And there is more than enough money coming into the promotion for everyone to be happy in this situation. So let's just talk a little bit about where we go from here in terms of who's important, who we're who's worth caring about at this point in the promotion. I know after this weekend, I know I listened to Ariel Hawane on Rich Eisen's show talk about it a little bit earlier, but I know they're talking about a John Jones fight at some point this summer. I know they're talking about running back McGregor Poirier for a third time, which honestly doesn't seem fair to Poirier, who should, if he's not the interim champion, should, you know, be fighting for the actual championship, depending on what Khabib decides to do. I heard I heard someone recommend McGregor DS3, which I think is perfect because they're both just um shit talking like nobodies in the fight game at this point. I I, I feel very weird. I feel very weird uh shit talking like professional fight people and be like, God, this guy's a pussy, you know. Well no, it, it's really um, the conversation about like, you know, who should be fighting for championships. Yeah. But I don't know. I think I, someone mentioned McGregor DS3. And I think that could be a really good matchup because they're also both at this point where like the, the hype has way exceeded uh, their actual fighting record and their actual just like density of fights at this point, which I do think, again, not to go on the sidebar, but, you know, you might even be able to work out like with the contractual system <laughs> and a CBA, you might even be able to work out like a minimum number of fights per year if these guys are healthy. Where um where you might see some of these guys more than once a year, you know, because and again again I'm all for these guys protecting themselves and making every decision they have to to you know prolong their careers as far as they can. But as a fan, like I would I would like to see you know I don't think four fights a year at a championship level is unreasonable. Maybe like five something like that. I mean, you saw what just happened with Jamayev, where he fought like five times in a month or whatever it was, and uh, people went nuts for that. 
but I don't know. My pet projects are, I think that Max Holloway is, uh, should at least have had his first title defense, uh, yesterday. I not yesterday, but against, um, against Calvin Cater, if not like outright, never lost the belt. I think he is at least one and one in those fights against Volkanovsky. So I hope they give him that title shot very soon. I am very actually, I'm actually pleasantly surprised. Uh, they're giving Ngannou the title shot against Miocic mm-hmm. immediately after uh, Miocic Cormier three because I figured with the John Jones news that they would that they would uh, sideline the guy the guy again and just give John Jones the title shot immediately. So I'm happy that's happening because as far as I'm concerned, I don't know the heavyweight the heavyweight division is my personal pet peeve at this point. I think I I'm I'm happy the trilogy fight is over and this is like the, specifically the reason that I get annoyed with like the need to have these trilogy fights is because. Francis Ngannou should have been the champion for like two years at this point. Like, I don't know, maybe Mitrich went five rounds with him back in the day, which is still incredible to me in retrospect. And I think that dude just must have like the best coaching ever. I really can't imagine like going any longer than like, I would actually die if I yeah. fought well, yeah. Francis Ngannou for sure. But even like, like Jairzinho Rosenstruck punched Alistair Overeem's mouth off. It was one of the most horrific things I've ever seen in my life. And I was convinced, like, okay, this guy hits harder than, like, almost anybody. I figured he was the one person who could maybe be a matchup for Nagano just in power. And Nagano slapped him in 40 seconds. I genuinely think at this point, like, it, it's too early to have a GOAT conversation or anything like that, obviously. But I just – Nagano's a, a tank. He should have been the champ at this point for, like, a year and a half. His prime is being wasted by this goddamn DC fucking Miachin bullshit. So I'm happy he's finally getting it. Um, I'm not sure anyone's ever going to beat Adesanya again, but I'm I'm very excited uh, for him against um. Oh God, what's the guy's Jan Vlachovich? Yeah. So I, I I really thought uh, I really thought Dom Reyes was going to take that. I thought uh, I I thought Dom Reyes beat John Jones, uh, if it weren't for like the late round championship deference that people usually get uh, back in February. But I I figured Vlachovich was going to be kind of a pushover but i don't know we'll see how adesanya does going up um i'm excited brian ortega's back brian ortega looked like uh like a new man the last time he fought so uh but i don't know man i've i've never seen someone do what max holloway did this did the calvin cater i my first thought was that it was like a matchup problem but then i had to remind myself that like calvin cater is a legitimately good fighter and max holloway is just that much better than him that's like that's like Anderson Silva stuff. That's like that's like just not being touched in a championship round. I also just hope that these guys leave Khabib alone. I, I think it's very. I do think it would be very funny. I don't think he has anything to prove. Uh, he's twenty nine and zero professionally. He's thirty and zero if you count the bear uh, that we he wrestled as a child, it's which you, sh- which you should count the bear. Um, it's a bear. You should count it. Uh, I don't think he comes out of retirement for anyone but GSP. Uh, like he said for a long time, he would love to fight George St. Pierre, who is still not that old. I think he's under 40. I think he's 38 or 39, yeah. Yeah, but um, so I don't know. I wouldn't mind seeing that happen, but at this point, I don't know. The guy the guy proved what he needed to prove. Uh, when he started talking about his dad and being there with his family, I got I got emotional. And um, I don't know. I hope he just has not I hope he has a nice long retirement, coaches some people. And uh, God, who else is there? Um, there's other guys. There's other guys. There's other guys. My point is, though, I, I don't know. The heavyweight division has so many good people in it right now, especially with um, especially with John Jones moving up to it now. I'm just I'm just happy that 
the trilogy fights have finally gotten out of the way and that division can get moving again. Because I, I really do think that once Ngannou, once Ngannou wins that belt, uh, he's only ever going to give it up when he retires. He's just like, I've never seen anyone hit as hard as that dude. It's it's obscene. And I don't know if anyone's ever beaten Adesanya at this point because he's got the same sort of... He's got the same sort of... Adesanya also is a great case study in why you should watch kickboxing, which I don't watch nearly enough, but like... <laughs> Like Adesanya is a uniquely good striker, but th- but that kind of precision striking is actually like not not that it's common in kickboxing, but like a lot of people can do that in the world of kickboxing at the highest level. Just have like these like just just sleep people off of off of just this like one little hit. But uh, so yeah, I don't know if anyone's ever beaten that dude. But I don't know. Maybe in light heavyweight it'll be different. I'm uh, I'm sad about Dominic Cruz too. I, I wanted him to. Uh, wanted him to come back, but uh, that last fight looked kind of sad. I think Jose Aldo, again, uh, I don't know. I guess uh, Peter, Peter Peter Young, congratulations, Pete, Jose Aldo, for that for that belt. But um, that was sad. That was hard to watch. That was like uh, that was like when Dom Reyes busted open Chris Weidman. Man, that was just as the Long Island kid. You know, nothing was cooler in the world than Chris Weidman being the guy who got to end Anderson Silva's win streak. And just seeing that guy get busted open for the last couple of years has been really hard to watch. It's it's both a testament to the, just the perseverance of the sport that even amongst all of the bullshit that guys like this are still able to make a recognizable name for themselves and assert themselves. But to your point about the trilogy nonsense, the never-ending circus aspect, it's unfair to these guys that, you know what? We don't want to do this. We want to do a trilogy. We want Brock Lesnar to come out of retirement to fight again. We want John Jones to go up to heavyweight. All of these decisions that are, you know, unfair to the workforce. I mean, it all, yeah. again, I know we keep saying this. It all comes back to the undercurrent of, well, Dana White wants to see John Jones fight Brock Lesnar at heavyweight, so it's going to happen. I, it's uh, it's frustrating. As a and a lot of these guys do earn immediate rematches. But again, this is something that would be fixed at least a little bit from a, from a material perspective if you had better pay rates uh, below the championship level. So, you know, there's a, like at this point, it's like a game of musical chairs and a, and a chair keeps on getting removed every now and then. And if it's out of rotation for a couple of years because the same two guys keep on bashing up against each other in high level fights, that might be entertaining to watch. It might get stale at some point or another. But the problem with that, again, is that, like, there's only so much money to be made if you're not fighting for a title in the sport. And even at that level, you know, it's nothing compared to, like, what Gennady Golovkin or whatever. Triple the, G. I, Triple G. Yeah, 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 that guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I, follow, I follow boxing. I actually enjoyed a boxing uh, match a while back. I, I felt, uh, I felt like, uh, I felt very, like, 1910s-ish. But Mike Tyson and Roy Jones being nah, up. nah. It was um, <laughs> who was it? It was um, it was that guy. What the guy who beat um Triple G on ESPN on like free TV at like one in the morning? Yeah, one of those. Yeah, it, it was just crazy. That fight was for free on tel- regular TV. But yeah, it was just some some fight. I don't know. I I really I'm. The longer I talk about boxing, the more I'm going to sound like a complete idiot. But um. It just it goes to show you like there's there's like almost there's like three identifiable guys. The UFC has a lot going for it in the fact that like 
it's a unified organization that is universally understood to be the top flight of mixed martial arts. It doesn't have the problem that boxing does where like there's like five billion champions. Yep. And every fight's a unification fight and historic in proportion and magnitude and it's just like very odd as a sport, the structure of it. I really don't understand it. But but at the same time, like somehow these guys get paid better with less money overall. So the last thing I wanted to talk to you about before I got you out of here and we could go back to doing our newsmen journalistic business as as we're known to do. Serious, serious objective reporters here. If I gave you the power, you can book any one match for the headlining pay-per-view of this summer. Let's say let's say the pandemic is gone and like they've said for years, we're gonna do a big UFC card at Jerry World in Dallas, Fourth of July weekend. It's going to be the event of the year. You can book the main event. Who would you like to see and why? Any division, any weight class, within reason. You can't have someone go like three. I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna say Ngano and Henry Cejudo. <laughs> Just to uh, get back to like the Bob Sapp days of Pride, which is yeah. there. There really is something to be said about like, like you know, I, I I know UFC wants to be a serious and professional sport, but if it went like full circus instead of half circus, there is value to that. Um, you're really crazy that after all this stuff, UFC is still only the second most openly corrupt MMA promotion of all time. What's the matchup I would want to see more than anything? I would love to see something like uh, like Israel Adesanya, John Jones at light yeah. heavyweight, especially if Adesanya is moving up to light heavyweight. I think that could be a fight that could be made if John Jones ever feels like moving back down. Um, what else would be cool? Uh, I don't know. I want I want Holloway to get the belt back. Uh, he's a good dude. I think I think he did. You know, we just said all this stuff about trilogy fights, but and I and I understand it's in a tough position. Like you can't just keep on letting him fight Volkanovski until he wins at some point or another. Uh, I would love to see like somebody uh, give Amanda Nunes a run for her money. Like I love Amanda Nunes, but Amanda Nunes a while back had some just 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 terrible defensive grappling. Like just I don't I don't know if she's all that good on her feet at, at on on the ground at all. And um I don't know. I feel like that's something that could be exploited by somebody if they could ever just like not get knocked out by her. But um gosh, any other good matchups. I am uh I really like that guy uh Mahmoud Muradov the other day. That guy was just like that was that was so fun. That that was a fun fight to watch because the moment that he got in there, you could tell just like from the way like you know nobody punches like diagonally unless yeah. they're trying to like hit the chin in just that right way. And it, you know again, there's something we said about like knockouts getting a little less valuable when everyone goes for them. But there's also something about like oh man, this guy's gonna try like doing like a one punch man thing. I haven't. I feel like I haven't actually answered the question. You gave uh, an answer. John Jones, Israel, Israel Adesanya would be a John Jones Adesanya would be great. Uh, John Jones and Gano. Uh, once Gano gets the belt, I think would be a fantastic fight as well. Uh, could be GSP if it ever happens. But um, I, I don't know. Like I said, I really, I really think Dana White should just leave the poor guy alone. Just leave the dude alone. He's made his wishes very clear at this point. Yeah. But that is like the one fight like he has for years been saying that he would like really like to do. So that'd be kind of cool. It was very weird that GSP came out of retirement to fight Bisping once and then retire again. Yeah. No, Bisping just is one of those guys. <laughs> he has that face. 
Like it hurt. You don't understand. It hurt me to compliment Dan Hardy before because Dan Hardy is an English person, and uh, <laughs> I am, I am uh, philosophically opposed to saying anything nice about the English. And uh, Bisping is, you know, beautiful himbo energy. <laughs> I'll never get over. Uh, God, I'll never get over Dan Henderson. It's just like fully decking him when he was knocked out. It's like, yeah, you know, I knew I hit him out. That one was just to shut him up for a bit. Because <laughs> again, like it's, it's a sport. It's a weird and brutal sport. And in, in a lot of ways, I think it's. Um, in a lot of ways, I think the periphery is like really off-putting to the casual fan. And there's something to be said that's like charming about that. And I, I don't know. It's not good for the money, but like I remember a while back, I was watching a. Uh, I was watching. They had like UFC archival. Like they were just running some tape back from like 2011 or 2014 or whenever uh, Anderson Silva fought Forrest Griffin, and uh, me and my buddy had come back from a concert or something. We were and we were just watching it, uh, just hanging out on his couch, and Anderson Silva just like you know goes Matrix mode and puts the guy on the ground and then just like fucking like just hammer fists his head to the point where it's like bouncing up and down and ragdolling between his fist and the and the floor of the cage. And it was just such a brutal, like, ugly spectacle. And I genuinely think my friend, like, has not watched UFC since then <laughs> because it was, like, such a disturbing thing for him to watch. Yeah. To the people out there listening, I think you've learned something, too, from this episode because pretty sure none of the regular listeners are, like, know that, like, Yaz Island was built with slave labor. So, like, at the end of the day, I felt like we helped – the journalistic pursuit of truth a little bit a little bit between us shitting on dana white a little bit yeah i i'm happy that you think any of this was articulate uh i wish you luck in the editing process and yeah everyone go read bloody elbow and uh kareem zadan is a is a must read every time he publishes something yeah yeah just is like it's really amazing like 70 percent of all the journalism done in the mma world is done by one guy it's not a tenable model but uh, he does a very good job at, at uh, carrying the team on his back. If you see me bump some of Mike's work on my social media, throw the man a follow. Yeah. Mike Adams, news writer, throw him a follow. Let him get, talk about the aneurysms he gets from random places. The one I sent him a couple of weeks ago was particularly funny. It screamed out, Mike's going to tweet the aneurysm tweet. The Amazon should be running the uh, vaccine rollout program in the oh, United God. States. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. yeah. That's what this is right now. This is when that that would be so funny if I had an annual if I actually got one <laughs> at this point. But uh, yeah, at Mike Newswriter, uh somebody please hire me. Uh I'm always looking for work. Uh if you want me to uh whitewash your authoritarian regime, uh I'm open to it. Uh, I'll consider it. Uh I need I need to pay bills. I need to put something in the bank account. I'm uh I'm I'm a lot more amenable to these things than I used to be. I'll write the uh, why concussions are good, actually, article for you, Dana White. You're going to be the Ted Wells of the UFC world. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. I will see you guys tomorrow for a San Jose Sharks episode. Yes. And no, Joe Thornton is not on the Sharks anymore. Peace.